This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. Coming up, two climate scientists with local ties talk about their research and the potential impacts of global climate change right here in Boulder. Dr. Twyla Moon is a research scientist with the National Snow and Ice Data Center, which is affiliated with the University of Colorado here in Boulder. Her work focuses on the retreat of the Greenland ice sheet. As well, she's very involved in science communication, as you will discover from the following conversation. Welcome to the show, Twyla, and thanks for talking today. So Twyla, maybe you could repeat the story that you told in your TED talk, which is a wonderful talk, and I'll link to that in the show notes, about your experience with a glacier and how that influenced you and your subsequent research. I had a very gut-punching experience. Uh, early on, as I was uh, in graduate school, I had, as an undergraduate, taken a road trip with friends through Canada, and we had stopped at the Athabascan Glacier. This is right in kind of the edge between Jasper and Banff National Parks. And we had with us a bike and, you know, of course, our adventure shoes. And we went gallivanting up on the Athabascan Glacier. And it was summer, but there was still snow on top of it. And we were having snowball fights and we were trying to ride our bike on it and just generally having a super fantastic time. And about 10 years later, I, my husband and I were traveling through Canada and we pulled up to the Athabasca Glacier and started to walk out the trail towards it. And it was a completely transformed landscape. There was actually now, instead of the edge of the glacier that we could walk up onto it, instead, there was now a sign at that site saying, here's where the glacier was in. Yes, really gut punched by that experience. And it helped me to really personalize the experiences that I was having in graduate school as I was studying the loss of ice all around the Greenland ice sheet. And I was reading papers about glacier loss around the world. And here I was having really up close and personal experience with how rapidly that ice loss was occurring. Yeah, I think many of us are having similar experiences that we're, 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 we're seeing or feeling the effects of climate change. And as many of the listeners probably know, ice loss is proceeding much faster. Well, ice is definitely by definition, I guess, in the Arctic and Antarctic, but the effects of climate change are proceeding much faster in those high latitude regions. Can you explain why that is? 
That's correct that we're seeing more rapid warming uh, in the Arctic. It's a process called Arctic amplification, and there are a few different things at play. A couple of those things include, one, we are losing the sea ice on the Arctic Ocean. So the northern part of our planet is a huge ocean, and it has, uh, for really all human time functionally had sea ice that covers it throughout winter and also throughout much of the summer. And that bright sea ice helps to reflect solar radiation back out to space. Um, and what we're seeing now is we're losing that sea ice cover on the Arctic Ocean and we're revealing a very, very dark ocean surface in contrast to that reflective sea ice. You can imagine looking at the earth from those pictures from uh, space, from astronauts, and the ocean always looks almost black. Well, that dark ocean is much better at taking up solar radiation and taking up heat from the sun, and then it holds on to it and can release that heat in fall and winter. So that's one of the things that's helping to warm the Arctic more rapidly. Another thing is that as we heat up the Arctic, the atmosphere there can hold more water vapor. And that water vapor itself actually also does a good job of holding on to heat and warming that region more than other parts of the planet. So we are seeing rates of warming that are up to four or more times the global average at during different seasons and time periods in the Arctic. And so in your studies, what exactly do you do in terms of studying Arctic ice and its effect on climate? The topics that I study as far as collecting new data or writing scientific research papers tend to focus on the Greenland ice sheet, thinking about how it's changing now in the modern day, how rapidly it's changing, what that looks like as far as the motion of the ice. It's actually ice around the world, land ice. Uh, to be a glacier or an ice sheet, you have to be in motion and that motion is changing. So that's something I study and the reconfiguration of the ice sheet edge as we lose ice there. And also what that means as far as the addition of fresh water to the ocean and how that connects with ecosystem and communities. So I like to take a systems perspective as much as I can. That involves a lot of collaboration with other researchers and understanding how this changing ice sheet is influencing local to, to global systems. So does that mean then that you visit Greenland every year and um, record changes? Thanks to satellites, I actually mostly use uh, data from satellites. The satellite revolution was a huge game changer for glaciology. The Greenland ice sheet covers the world's largest island. The Antarctic ice sheet, of course, covers a whole continent. And it was very hard for us to understand what was happening on these ice sheet wide scales uh, when we had to depend on doing work just on the ground or using aeroplanes. But the development of more and more satellite measurement technology has really revolutionized what we can know about these ice sheets. And that what is what helped us to understand how quickly these ice sheets could change. And now today be able to watch that change happening in real time and also learn from it so that we can better project the changes that are to come. Oh, that's truly remarkable that 
you can use remote data and characterize these distant ice sheets and then come up with models and projections for what their effects are going to be all across the globe. So can you talk a little bit about that, how these really distant glaciers are affecting us now? That's a great question and something that I hope more and more people are beginning to understand is that changes at places far away from us on the globe can influence us locally. For the Greenland ice sheet, some the most pronounced changes that we see around the globe have to do with sea level rise. And sometimes I think the phrase sea level rise doesn't help us understand the full swath of impacts. They can include coastal erosion, increased flooding or flooding in places that have never experienced it. And that can include inland flooding because rising oceans can also change your groundwater table. We can also run into issues of ocean, salty ocean water inundating freshwater uh, drinking sources or uh, rising seas interrupting infrastructure like buildings and roads, but also like our sewer and water systems and causing issues with our global economy in regards to shipping and so many of the kind of coastal activities that we have. So as we lose ice from the Greenland ice sheet, actually counterintuitively, it causes seas to rise most far away from the ice sheet. So that's one of the largest global impacts that we experience from changing land ice from the Greenland ice sheet. And is that in part because the the meltwater from those ice sheets is cold and then it sinks and induces additional ocean currents? The reason that we see sea levels rise more far away from an ice sheet has a couple different elements at play. First, as we're losing ice from the Greenland ice sheet itself, um, that weight of that ice is no longer pushing down on the land beneath it. So that allows locally the land to rise some. So that influences them not experiencing sea level rise in Greenland. But as far as it coming to, for example, our shores here in the U.S., what happens is that huge mass of ice that covers Greenland actually has an influence on the gravitational pull of the earth. And as you have that ice frozen in place, that gravitational field is helping to pull ocean water towards it. And as we lose the ice and that becomes water in the ocean, we're changing the gravitational field and we're not pulling the ocean towards the ice sheet in the same way. And so instead that ocean water is redistributed on the surface of the earth and it causes more sea level rise far away. So it's pretty remarkable to appreciate that humans today are having an influence on these systems that are actually rewriting the gravitational field of the earth. Uh, that is so true. I was just thinking those exact words that how crazy we little tiny humans are affecting the gravitational field of our planet. It's amazing. So I guess then in that sense, it shouldn't be surprising that some of these changes far away in the Arctic could have repercussions right here around Boulder in terms of the dryness that contributed to the recent fires. And I realize this is not really your area, but could you speculate a little bit on that kind of relationship? 
There are a lot of connections that link from pole to equator to the other pole. And at any point on the planet, you are feeling the influences of atmospheric circulation, ocean uh, motion, and other things that are happening all over the globe. Some of the things that happen in the Arctic that we might feel the influence of here towards the center of the Northern North America continent include the loss of sea ice, which changes some of the atmospheric behavior. And that can influence uh, storms, uh, how wet or dry different locations are. So we, I don't want to necessarily draw a direct link between an Arctic change and, for example, the Marshall Fire. But certainly, we are now living in a changed and changing climate. And the changes that we see happening in the Arctic, which are happening under more rapid warming, are reaching down and influencing the conditions that we are experiencing uh, here in Colorado. Well, that makes perfect sense. And We'll have to leave it there, Twyla. I want to thank you so much. And I also want to reiterate that for the listeners who are interested in actions that they can take, I'll link to your TED Talk, which includes some really specific actions that you are very excited about. So thank you once again, and good luck with your continuing research and also your science communication efforts. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. That was Dr. Twyla Moon, a glaciologist turned climate scientist. We talked about her research into the effects of ice sheet melt on climate. You can learn more at her website and if you watch her TED Talk. It's very inspiring. You can find the links in the show notes. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Up next, Dr. Brian Buma, Associate Professor of Integrative Biology at the University of Colorado at Denver. He studies landscape ecology, and if you don't know what this is, stay tuned. This field is well-oriented to examine the effects of climate change on global as well as local ecosystems. Welcome to the show, Brian. His research focuses on landscape ecology and more specifically with relevance to our program today, how that relates to climate change. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Why don't you start off by telling us what landscape ecology is? Sure. Yeah, landscape ecology is a, a, a branch or a subdiscipline or a part of ecology that focuses on fairly broad scales of change and um, processes like fires or windstorms and how those change ecosystems. If you like maps and if you like um, looking at the big picture, it's the discipline for you because it's the one where we get to consider how the world is changing with climate, how species are moving north or south or up. Um, so it's, it's a big picture type of science. And sounds very visual, which of course relates to your book. And I will link to that as well in our show notes. And so that idea of change is clearly pretty relevant right now. I mean, changes embodied in the term climate change. So you've been tying climate change into your research. 
Can you talk a little bit about that? It's of course also true that ecosystems have been changing since there were ecosystems, right? It's just that now humans have a big hand in forcing those changes. Like we're unintentionally or not, we're directing a lot of those changes. And because of a lot of great work of a lot of scientists, we know where we're pushing it. We know where some of those changes are going, or at least the broad direction, and, and we don't like all of them. So that's why the study of climate change and the study of the potential effects and the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of climate change is important. So my work focuses on mostly on natural disasters. Like in ecology, we call them disturbances, uh, but things like fire or landslides or wind, you know, what that means for ecosystems. Like, like fires have always been around, but and ecosystems have adapted and have, in some cases evolved ways to not only deal with them, but take advantage of them. Uh, but now as we change fire regimes, what does that mean? You know, are our systems still resilient? Are they resistant to these sort of things? And if they're not, like what, what happens afterwards? So the other side of my research is range limits, like um, where species uh, sort of their tolerance is like how far north they go, how far south they go, up or down. And if they're able to adapt and migrate um, with climate change or with those disturbances. So sometimes like after a fire, we'll see species taking advantage of that new opening and, and moving north and moving into better climates. So like actually taking advantage of the fire. And sometimes we see fires just wiping whole, um, whole systems out. Well, like you said earlier, these are really big picture kinds of ideas. So can you give us an idea of your methodology? Like how do you actually go in and measure these changes? Sure. It's, uh, it varies a lot. Uh, that, that's one of the challenges is coming up with a good measurement scheme sometimes. And I have uh, study systems all over the place and students doing incredibly good work all over the place um, where they basically are trying to, to do something that's very difficult that you alluded to, which is make a measurement at some point in time and then make a bigger statement about that, what that means uh, for change through time. And that, that's a challenging thing. And that's, that's one of the fun parts about science is you're, you're constantly going out and, and measuring these sorts of things and then checking your work later. <laughs> like, did, did it actually work out? Uh, did it do what we said? So um, some examples of the methodology, uh, after fires, I have this, uh, a, a student named Kate Hayes. She's working in um, central Alaska uh, and she's going out about 15 years after fires and uh, measuring uh, the amount of regeneration, the amount of trees coming back, as well as um, permafrost depth and things of that nature, things that we expect to change as the climate has changed um, compared to historical historical records. So that's, that's one example is just counting regeneration. Um, another student working locally, Aaron uh, uh, Twadell, working in the, in the Calwood fire that happened in, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, um, She's going out and measuring carbon to, to see um, how forestry treatments, how, how our management of an ecosystem changed the response of that ecosystem to fire, you know, like in areas where there was thinning or prescribed burning, did that reduce the carbon loss associated with that fire, you know, the, the mortality associated with that fire, things, things of that nature. So, um, and, and then as a last example, um, I'm, I set these things up. So, uh, I run a long-term ecological study in Glacier Bay. It's actually one of the, it's the longest going in the world 
and we try and uh, measure them so that they create this record. Now that's a lot of territory to cover. It, and it sounds like you have to actually be there in person to make the measurements and observe what's going on because sometimes you'd be struck by factors or phenomena that you might not have predicted, say, if you tried to do all this remotely. It's true. Um, our, our work actually involves a sizable amount of remote sensing. Um, so satellite imagery or GIS or that sorts of things. But you hit on the, the crucial point is that you can look at stuff from space, but until you're there in the ground, you can't necessarily interpret what's happening yet, at least at the scale we're trying to work at, right? Like um, satellites are amazing for some things, like, like directly for some things like sea ocean temperatures or atmospheric temperatures or land but things like that but if you want to count trees uh, or <laughs> see how a forest is regenerating you can't really do that easily without going there on the ground now we still do use a lot of satellite imagery it's an incredible technology and what we use it for is is scaling so there's a challenging disconnect between the methods i just described which is like going in and counting trees or measuring permafrost depth and then talking about the big picture questions, which I mentioned prior, you know, how is the world changing? So we use remote sensing uh, as a way to scale up the data we see on the ground or the, the measurements we make on the ground to the broader region. It, it's called training. And, and what you do is you go in and you basically say, this is what's actually happening on the ground. What does this look like when I see it from space? Mm -hmm. And then you, you can uh, extrapolate from that using, using statistics. And you have both ends of the spectrum cover. You have people on the ground, so you have really fine scale, and then you have the satellites, so you can go from one end to the other. And like you said, make those correlations and do the training, which is really a powerful tool. But oh, let's get back so. to talking yeah. about fires, because I know a lot of people in the audience are interested in this yeah. topic right now. Can you make some general statements about trends that you're seeing? Like you did mention that in the past, ecosystems have become adapted to fires, but those typically haven't been the scale or the hotness, if you will, of the fires we've been seeing lately. So how is, is that fire ecology changing right now? Yeah, a lot of ecosystems, ours included, um, have grown up with fire, have, have evolved, co-evolved with fire, have lived with fire for a very long time. And, and so the marsh, like the Marshall fire, obviously, and that was just a, that was a, that was a, just a horrible event, but it, it's, it is true that fires are not unusual around here. Uh, the front range has a variable fire regime, meaning sometimes they're high severity, sometimes they're low severity, but other parts in the world have only very intense fires like the boreal forest in Alaska. Um, that happen every 100, 200 years. And some places have very low severity, but every couple of years, sorts of fires, like in the more Southwest. The, the way that climate change is pushing fires, though, in, in new ways, is things like the intensity. Our droughts are worse. Fires around here were summer sorts of phenomenon. So getting a fire that actually burns forests and burns um, cities in the late fall and winter, like we saw with the Calwood fire and then the Marshall fire, that is unusual and that does uh, impact ecosystems in, in different ways. And we're only now starting to study the effects of these out of season fires. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like regeneration following these really intense fires would not only take longer, but there wouldn't be the, the raw material that is in terms of the soil, 
ability to hold plant seeds or even plant seeds to survive those fires? Yeah, that's that's the big challenge here because we see problems with recovery coming from a couple different places. One is these fires tend to be bigger or they've been bigger uh, because they're burning in more extreme conditions, you know, drier conditions. And so they just they just tend to be bigger fires like in space. And what that means is you have more and more area that are a long ways from surviving trees. And so the first challenge to regeneration resilience is just getting a seed there in the first place. And then there's another challenge of the more intense fires burning away the soil, disrupting the soil a bit more, changing the seed bed. And that's, that's a very real one too. Uh, if you completely wipe off the whole organic layer covering the soil, which is not terribly normal, especially down here, that makes it much harder for seedlings to establish. Uh, you get hotter conditions on the ground. Uh, seeds can't necessarily tolerate that. That hot conditions and finally um, seedlings once they sprout let's assume you get a let's assume you get a seed there and it germinates it's still got to grow and seedlings are very vulnerable to dry conditions and this like low elevation like sort of lower tree line sorts of things it's already kind of marginal for growing a tree from a seed because it's hot and dry in the summer and as it gets hotter and as it gets drier, as the summer gets longer, uh, that's going to be more and more of a challenge. And, and we'll see more and more regeneration failures after. Right. And it sounds like grasslands burn pretty easily, too. So it's not <laughs> like we'd be protected against forest fires if we transitioned to a grassland ecosystem. Yeah, unfortunately, we saw that. Yeah, this year was especially bad, obviously. Uh, from July 1st through the end of December, uh, Denver was the lowest amount of precipitation it's ever had. Well, before we leave, given that uh, we humans are influencing the landscape so much, is there anything positive we can be doing in terms of our effects on landscapes that might mitigate these kinds of natural disasters that you've been studying? Essentially making communities that can live with fire um, as opposed to ones that um, you know, are sort of at its mercy. And that, that may look like more active fire management, using fire as a tool to reduce fuels. Um, Colorado has sort of a checkered history uh, doing that with some successes and failures, but it is a fairly effective tool. When they rebuild, they rebuild in such a way that they uh, are thinking about this sort of thing, that evacuation routes are present. But then also recognize that sometimes these extreme events happen and that's the world we live in. And so we need to make sure that emergency services are prepared, that there are routes um, to leave and, uh, and folks are, are, are going in knowing that this could happen. Well, that's a positive note that we can end on. So I wanna thank you again, Brian, for talking to us today. Yeah, thanks so much, I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Brian Buma describing his work in characterizing natural disasters and their role in shaping numerous ecosystems. As we discussed, Natural disasters include climate-influenced disasters such as the recent Marshall Fire. You can find out more about his work and his recent book on his website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran, and I produce this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Aram Kachaturian. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and links to the show notes. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 
questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.